You're about to learn a lot more about green cars. This is AutoLine. There's all kinds of talk about alternative cars that are going to hit the market in the next couple of years, but what kind of cars are coming and do they really live up to all the hype that's being talked about? Automakers claim they're doing all they can while their critics charge, they're merely dragging their feet. To get to the bottom of what we're going to see showing up in the showrooms, I've got two guests who really follow these developments. John DeChico is a senior fellow at the Environmental Defense Fund and Paul Eisenstein is a journalist who reports on these developments. You're going to find that this is a really good discussion, so don't go away. We'll be back right after this. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. AutoLine Extra, John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get the inside view at AutoLineDetroit.tv. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to our discussion all about the electrification of the automobile, and we'll explain what that's all about. But joining me today on the set is John DeChico, a senior fellow with Environmental Defense Fund. Great to have you on the set of AutoLine. Great to be on today, John. And Paul Eisenstein, the bureau chief of the Detroit Bureau. Great to have you Hi, here, John. Paul. So let's talk about the electrification, and I know there's all kinds of ways of where we can go, but essentially we're talking about making a car run with electricity. And I guess my question to you, John, is we've seen everybody get all hot and bothered and excited about all this new technology, and then gas prices go down and we're back to gasoline and piston engines. So is this a craze or is this going to catch on? It's going to catch on. I think we're going to see ups and downs with this like, like anything else. but. It's really inevitable, and not just because of the gas saving angle. I mean, that's important, and when gas prices are high, you're gonna see more interest in this. But there's so many things that automakers can do to offer value for the customers in terms of performance that have to do with electricity. It just opens up. So much well torque with electric motors. I mean, is that what that's you're talking about? That's part of it, the torque. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about putting the whole powertrain under computerized, programmable control. Yeah. And the ability to do that, it's going to dovetail with other aspects of the electrification in terms of smart technologies and, and control of cars. So it, it's, it's coming. I can't say how fast, but uh, it's inevitable. What I find interesting is that despite seeing gas prices go down, what, 60-some percent in the last two months, there has been no backing off that I can see from the automakers. People are backing off, makers are backing off on diesels, certainly, but there has been no backing off in terms of what I have been hearing on the electric vehicle side. In fact, uh, uh, having gone to a couple of the backgrounders that manufacturers have before the Detroit Auto Show, uh, I expect and I've seen a bunch of electric vehicles, uh, electrified vehicles, that we will be bringing out to the public at the Detroit show in only a few weeks. Yeah, because we're talking about plug-in hybrids, uh, which can be uh, a normal uh, mechanical mm -hmm. electric hybrid or extended range electric vehicle or just pure battery More electric like vehicle. like the BMW. BMW is going to start its leasing of a, an electric Mini. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. I, I think it's good, if, if you don't mind me jumping in, John, the, just to touch on the range of what electrification means. 
uh, at the very, very lowest end, uh, according to a panel that I put together for an event uh, over the summer, you are likely to see most American vehicles, probably most in the, in the major markets by the middle of next decade, have at the very least stop-start capability. Yeah, just turn the engine off. Turn the engine off and Not just in America, this is going to be all over the world. Yeah, it will start first in Europe. It's already much more common there. But it'll certainly work its way through the developed markets and then as it gets cheaper, even into the emerging markets. At the extreme other end, you have what now is being called the BEV, or the battery electric vehicle, as opposed to just the EV, to keep confusing, keep people from getting confused over HEVs, EREVs, plug-in EVs, and so on. Uh, But what's interesting is that you have a huge range of electrification that you can, that you are likely to see all the way up to the battery car. And what's intriguing to me is that how many makers are moving into the pure battery powered segment very, very quickly. Even some that as little as a year ago said, nah, it doesn't work. Suddenly they're saying, we're coming. Okay, and you're absolutely right. But Honda, which is always viewed as very green and very advanced Mm -hmm. from a technological standpoint, says the batteries aren't ready. John, are they right or no? I have to agree generally with Honda, especially for the context of the North American market, how we use our cars, the expectations we have in the car. I think the pure electric is going to be very limited. You're going to see some interest in it. Don't get me wrong. It's going to be chic in certain niches and cities where it's workable. Uh, I think the reason all the makers are investing in it, as Paul says, is that it's going to be very important in emerging markets. So I'd love to know how Honda answers the question in that context. Certainly in the context of the expectations that tend to get set here in the United States, where I think we, we're ten, we tend to embrace this and then embrace that. I think it's maybe a little overhyped now on, in terms of what it's going to mean in, in North America. And I tend to agree with Honda in that, in that yeah. context. I mean, there's, there's no question, even with the improvements we're seeing with the battery, there is a huge hurdle to be, to be overcome if you expect to see large numbers of electric vehicles, pure battery electric vehicles. Now. Uh, See, Carlos Ghosn, when I spoke to him at the LA Auto Show, I believe he was saying as much as 10% of the market, that's what Nissan is aiming for, the global market, of 70 million vehicles a year, about 7 million a year by 2020, they're expecting to be pure battery vehicles. But it may work better in places, even China, though it's a big country, people don't tend to travel in long distances. So having a vehicle that might do 100 to 150 miles a day on a charge would be fine. Certainly Israel, which is making a big push, Denmark, other countries where you have short distances. To me, the real breakthrough is the electric vehicle that's not quite, and that is the plug-in, or if you prefer, the extended range electric that will meet- Like the Chevy Volt. Like the Chevy Volt and a Prius version that's supposed to be coming, and one we just saw introduced in China by BYD. Uh, Everybody's saying 40 miles, which covers something like 75% of what Americans use in a typical day. But it also overcomes what I call the over the meadow and through the woods syndrome. (laughs) Everybody wants to know they can get to grandma's house once or twice a year. That 300 mile drive is still part of the purchase. It's why people who drive 90% of the time with one person in the car still want a seven seater. 
for the time they have the extended family together. They want to be able to go 300, 400 miles. And the plug-in or extended range vehicle should help accomplish that if they meet their expectations. Well, all of, all of this is being done more for environmental reasons than anything else. But John, let me ask you, I mean, if you're burning coal to make your electricity, and especially in places like China and India, where mm -hmm. there really aren't any emission controls whatsoever on those, uh, those generating plants, are you making any progress? Well, you are. It, it certainly does depend on the quality of emissions control. Yeah. So um, it's, that's a problem, in, as it is in all industries in the developing countries. So China is working on its emissions control. But let's take it in the U.S. context, because 60% of our electricity still comes from coal. But the, the fact of the matter is, is if you substitute a gasoline mile uh, with an electric mile, taking the average gasoline we get in this country from petroleum and the average electricity we get from our generation mix, 60% coal, uh, you do cut CO2 emissions roughly in half. So I don't think there's a question, um, certainly for North America and Europe where we have reasonable controls on the power plants and, and therefore you minimize the problem with the acid rain and the smog part of the power plants, that for the CO2, which is the big, real big problem we face, that electrification is a good thing. The reason uh, someone like myself uh, and my organization falls short of, say, being just out-and-out out boosters, let's just push electrics, is it is very costly still. And there's still a lot of questions about the battery. And it's not necessarily the most cost-effective way to cut that pollution right now. We think we ought to let the market evolve, and I think the value is going to be driven by a lot of other factors in addition to the environment. There are a couple of points. I want to hit on, and John, you raised one, if, if I can hit on two things in particular. Uh, John, you said it's not necessarily the best way to go about this, but uh, what's interesting is you talk with some people who are normally not exactly the biggest friends of green. Uh, Bob Lutz, the Carzar GM, who still is not convinced there's such a thing as global warming, loves electric. And one of the reasons he does is it's an incredible way to improve performance. Uh, the reality is, if you could find a long enough extension cord, you didn't have to worry about batteries. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody would want to go electric because you get maximum torque the moment the, the motor starts turning. Uh, you look at some of the uh, EV numbers, and they're doing incredible, oh, yeah. incredible sure. performance. The Tesla in the quarter mile is just blistering fast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a growing movement towards uh, creating a, uh, a drag racing electric drag racing association, because uh, some of those are incredible. They're not quite as fast as the, the top funny cars, but they're pretty quick. Now, one of the interesting things that you're talking about, John, is raising the question of can we change the model so that we start making an economic case for electric? Nissan's been doing some wonderful stuff. Uh, for example, they're talking about such things as can we find secondary uses for the battery? Can we use them to help support the grid? Going green has a problem because green energy is often available in peaks, daylight for, for uh, solar, and uh, it's irregular with wind. So can you take a lot of these batteries, especially after the, you're done with them in the car, and help create a backup with the grid? Uh, and Carlos Ghosn has proposed doing something equally interesting in terms of making the case for the uh, battery for the consumer. And what they're saying is, we're going to take the 2012 battery car that we're going to sell to consumers. We're going to sell you the car, but the battery we're going to lease you. 
and we're going to make sure that the price for that battery is no more expensive than you would typically pay for a month's worth of gasoline and you'll be able to trade it in. So when we go from a 100 mile range to the 250 that their people are internally talking about to three and 400 miles, you'll be able to upgrade. Yeah, well guess what, it's not just Nissan saying that. Ford and GM have True. been pushing everyone this. Have been fact, looking at that. Everyone, Ford right. Is, yeah. Ford is working, been working with SoCal Edison on this for a few yeah. years. Some of these co concepts, and I think, I think some new business models here are going to be very important because um, like it or not, uh, you know, the, the problems with the battery uh, as, as a drop-in solution in the car, as we know it today, just haven't gone away. Battery yeah. progress has been slow and painstaking. There's no Moore's Law There's when it no, comes to batteries. There certainly, certainly is, is not. Uh, the, um, the question I think that uh, policymakers face, because, you know, you, you talked about GM's excitement about the Volt now. Well, hey, you guys remember how excited they were about the hydrogen car, just how many years Ooh. ago that was. And we heard the story uh, coming from, the, I guess, their executive there, Larry Burns, that you know, and the press got picked up, picked it up. There could be as many as a million hydrogen cars on the road by 2010. And the mm -hmm. president said, oh, and the car driven by a child born today will have nothing but water coming from its tailpipe. So I think we have to be really careful about reading too much into mm -hmm. what certain companies do, legitimate R&D, legitimate, important experimentation, and um, the kind of expectations that tend to get set up about that. So uh, as much as I believe that the future is electric in terms of uh, automotive powertrain is concerned, I think it's really important to not keep lurching from one hyped solution to another. And I worry that we're in a bubble now of of a you know, plug-in hybrid hype right. that uh, looks a lot like the bubble we saw about five years ago on the hydrogen hype. Well, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's interesting that suddenly we're hearing nothing about hydrogen. I've heard of nobody making a big push. I think this will be the first year there's nothing of hydrogen at the, that'll be coming up at the Detroit Well, Honda Auto did a show. bunch of stuff Honda this year has with been, the no, but I mean, Honda's been slow and steady in moving right. hydrogen They're, they're the rare one, but and nobody is doing this big push of a hydrogen vehicle at the Detroit show. For the last few years, there's always been at least one big right. announcement. Well, the big issue is, okay, you figured out how to make fuel cells and do it in high volume. Now, where do you get your hydrogen? I mean, we have to put a whole infrastructure in place, and I think that's the big albatross around hydrogen uh, snack or the two. fuel cells. Now, well, that's, that's actually not as big a problem as the second problem, and that's hydrogen storage. That's the in, in fact, in if, you, exactly. if you drive along the 405 and some of the other roads, mm. Pacific Coast Highway in, in LA area, you'll see these massive pipes that are shipping hydrogen. We produce an amazing amount of hydrogen. I've heard it said that we can fuel almost 50 million cars a mm. year with the hydrogen already being produced in the United States. Typically, it's not an energy efficient form of hydrogen, so it wouldn't be what we'd want to switch to. We can make the hydrogen. The big problem is distributing it, and then the really big problem is storing it on the car. Yeah. The cost and technology are the, so poor. The tank costs as much as the fuel cell. Right. right. And you know, that's, to me, this as a person who's really charged with, how do you figure out the environmental problem here? Because it's so big, it's related to the oil problem. We've been looking at solution after solution 
uh, plug-ins now. It's, I, I look at it as the, sort of the second genesis of the electrification because remember, remember the impact and remember the right. EV1 that spawned the California ZEV mandate and, and then eventually the film who killed the electric car. But, yes. uh, and then we had hydrogen in between and then now we have the biofuels. That, and again, that was, everyone was rushing to that a few years ago and now we're worrying about food versus fuel. Um, meanwhile, if you look at what's going on, the auto industry is struggling with the cost of this technology. They're working on uh, the different pieces of it. They have to be there and hedge their bets on the technology. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you look from a carbon perspective, we're still ultimately, whether it's through the power plants or through the petroleum, taking, as I call it, the dead dinosaurs out of the ground, processing them, sticking them into our tanks and blasting them out of our tailpipes. And the missing link, in my view, that it would be the enabler to let any of these solutions take off, is the fact that the country hasn't said, we've got to stop taking the dead dinosaurs <laughs> out of the ground. <laughs> you know, which we, we have, don't have a policy to really constrain CO2. We have policies like CAFE standards, corporate average standards, and the California Flawed, standards, certainly. which get you partway there. But, you know, what we're trying to do is promote electricity or ethanol or hydrogen or you name it against a petroleum industry that has no constraints on its ability to get dead dinosaurs and process it. So I really think until we put a cap on carbon that limits and ratchets down the oil industry, these promotional policies are going to have a lot of trouble getting traction. Well, John, because oil can always undercut them, and that's what we're seeing if, again. If you look in Europe, uh, where they're becoming mm -hmm. more serious caps, uh, you're seeing the European makers move extremely aggressively. Even the big guys like Mercedes are saying, how do we electrify? Because the potential, the way that a lot of these laws work, the credits they're going to get exactly. from going electric is so tremendous. There's value in the carbon credits if we can put a carbon right. market so, in place. So from that's, that happens exactly. to be why I do believe that electric's going to take off. Because what, barring something where we, we just realized lithium ion is a complete dead end, which is possible. But if lithium ion comes through as you know, somewhat mm -hmm. reasonable skeptics believe it can, uh, we are probably going to see that as a solution for lack of anything better, because we are going to see tougher standards maybe, here maybe, and even maybe, and it comes back to a point that you raised earlier: is the cost of this, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the Chevy Volt they're saying is going to be a forty thousand dollar car. The the battery pack alone is ten thousand dollars. And to your point, unlike electronics, where you know you have Moore's mm -hmm. law, where you cut the mm -hmm. price or double the capacity every whatever twelve months, say sixteen months, that didn't happen in batteries. No, in fact, I'm a mechanical engineer. And we we used to have a saying: "Well, batteries can't get out of their own way." <laughs> Remember yeah. that one? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's 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 a fundamentally tough problem uh, because uh, you really need something that will let you create that business case and reward the innovative models that um, Paul was telling about the Nissan mm -hmm. model and working with the this Israeli Better Place people and the right. battery swap. So there's a potential for some new business models here, but the reward in today's marketplace where carbon is unconstrained is pretty risky. Whereas if you know that, well, carbon has to come down, we're going to have carbon credits, 
somebody who can put together a package, whether it's batteries or maybe a biofuel or maybe more than one of these that says, I'm going to put together a package with a car company and a fuel supplier and something that's going to deal with the customer side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And over the life of the vehicle, I'm going to cut the carbon in half. That's a boatload of carbon credits that that ought to be able to capture and leverage the financing because that's the missing link now. It's too risky. But you know what the bigger missing link is? All this cap and trade is being talked about with uh, electric utilities and giant sure. corporations. What about me? Mm -hmm. What about me buying a vault and me getting carbon credits and being able to go well, sell that on the market? That would get the public behind it well, 100%. Well, you may not get it Well, there, that's right. But, but you've, got to, and they let, you've got to create the business people to yeah. offer you that deal. Right, but, but you somebody's got to buy it. Right, but you that's what I'm right. getting at. When that's it's ten thousand dollars a battery, look, I want to buy a Volt. I've got the means to be able to do that. Actually, let me let me a tell lot you, of the market. Most of the people out there can't do it. Let me tell you where it will come in. But first of all, one of the ways that you'll get credit is through simple taxation. Uh, what's it? Um, Nissan is going to launch its electric vehicle in Oregon because the government there has agreed to somewhat $5,000 in tax credits. That's a pretty significant dollar figure that offsets a lot of cost, especially if Nissan, in fact, goes ahead with this program, we lease the battery so you're not getting nailed. And the operating cost per mile is so cheap that mm -hmm. there's a lot of advantages there. Uh, it's interesting to note that one of the business advantages, which has only been written about, I, I, I wrote about this recently, and I think it may have been the first time it came up, one of the advantages that Tesla has is that it is getting so many tax credits from California and other places for what it is doing. It's able to sell those tax credits to other manufacturers <laughs> that are having problems. And I, I'm sorry, it's been a few months since I wrote the story, but it, it worked out to something like several thousand dollars for every vehicle they build. So, yeah, they're not building many vehicles, but frankly, if they build a thousand of them, they're, they're making three million or four million dollars. And for a small company, that's, that's helpful. But you know, the thing is, to, to go back to your question, John, what's it mean for the average consumer? You know, the, the problem is too big. There's too many consumers in the country that if you want to make a difference, we can't subsidize each one to the tune of several thousand dollars. I mean, Eventually, that's... no. Well, no. So, and... Again, because we're running out of right, time. We're, here. You know, we've had a lot of experience with subsidizing this and subsidizing that in the hope that that'll get it off the ground and then it'll take off and it hasn't happened. So to go back to the consumer question, I think you really need to put in place the carbon market so that suppose you have a car company team up with a utility company. They're the ones who ultimately have to market to the mm -hmm. consumer. If they get an incentive in the carbon market, then they're going to have the ability to pass that on to you and offer you a battery leasing deal or something like that that's much more attractive so that you, the consumer, aren't stuck with the cost and risk of the battery. And with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. John DeChico, Paul Eisenstein, thanks so much for coming in and talking about the electrification of the automobile. So you're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion, and I want to thank my guests, John DeChico from the Environmental Defense Fund and Paul Eisenstein from the Detroit Bureau. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching as we give you a front row seat as to what's going on inside the automotive industry. Visit our website for even more great content all week long.